0: How's your morning,
1: Gary? So well. Um, I, well, I. What have I been doing this morning? I have been well, basically thinking about you know what shall I talk about today, and having a look at your other podcasts and thinking what what are the conversations that you know we want to have that need to be had that are being had, and um, I think one thing that's just really come up for me is that there are all of these conversations that before maybe the past year and lockdown and a lot more events happening online, I would never have had, um, and a lot of things that I would never have known about. All of these um, philosophical conversations, all of these groups of, you know, I didn't even know integral theory existed, for example, until <laughs> um, lockdown. Um, and yeah i am used to having conversations with arts people about arts things and uh now suddenly I'm having all of these philosophical mm. conversations and all of these conversations about like what is it to exist and I love it so much
2: <laughs> I'm with you i um i well I'm so glad we actually started doing this podcast because <clears throat> I've had like in the in a very condensed amount of time the most interesting conversations I've had in my life (laughs) do you know what i mean like in that compressed time like maybe over the past you know over a 10 year span i'll have this many interesting like really interesting conversations but and like you're saying exposed to all kinds of new different ideas like complexity theory integral theory things like that just like really important stuff and um especially trying to understand you know how we got to this situation right now and just understanding present circumstances and like how to navigate the future like it's really interesting it's really helpful
1: I think it's like this collective um, not dark night of the soul necessarily because it's not necessarily dark but it's like a whole ton of people have uh, maybe some people were doing it before and I think to some extent I was but collectively have all come together and said, we're having a bit of an existential moment here, and um, trying to make sense of that, and bringing all of our skills to that, bringing all of our, say, academic disciplines, for those of us who have those, all of our, all of our previous stuff and unpacking it. And I think, say, a lot of what's happening with metamodernism at the moment, so far as I've learned so far, is we're, we're bringing all of these theories to the table and looking at them, And almost having an object-oriented ontology approach to them and thinking, well, what are we actually doing with them here and now in a really embodied way? Um, Which I think is both really helpful, but also wonderfully jarring because (laughs) we're trying to apply these two things and there's always a sense of this gap. And uh, what happens in the gap and everything's becoming Mm -hmm. really immediate.
0: So what are the two things that you think are gapped in this, in this instance, Carrie, just for my Um, understanding.
1: So I think the gap is we've got, you know, the modern, we've got the postmodern, we've got all of the things that, say, integral theory says we have to work with, or, you know, the things before integral theory. But um, we have, we have academic approaches up until the modern, we have the postmodern, and then we have, there seems to be, a gap between it's very difficult for me to say what the gap is between because i think that's the question but we have this gap between the conceptualization Mm -hmm. of things and the things themselves the gap between those things seems to be coming be becoming more and more apparent um and there seems to be more of a a Mm. sense that somehow some way of talking about these things or conceptualizing them is missing but what is it and how can we get beyond it and communicate about it
0: fascinating yeah that that's a super helpful clarification i think one of the things that's really interesting to me about thinking about that gap is as you say like there's part of the impulse is to maybe go beyond it or move through it but i think one of the most interesting things for me at the moment is what happens if we seek to actually occupy the gap itself mm. right um and maybe occupy is not the best verb because there's this like in, in that liminality it's like occupy is almost too fixed because right it's it it's this very um at least in in the way that i'm feeling into it at the moment like this this space is super fluid right and so what happens when we uh, we start to increase our permeability, like at our boundary and then feel into that space, begin to move into that space in some way, because I th- I think that um, there's the possibility, right, of if we can really uh, get more comfortable hanging out in the unknown, right, and in the indeterminate, that maybe the option for um bridging concept and perception uh in in some new way might become more available to us you know
1: i think so i think um noticing that we are in the gap and not being frightened of being in the gap is really important and i think particularly in Uh, academia, or just in conversation with people, there can often be a sense of, I ought to know what's going on. I ought to be informed. Um, And if I'm not, I'm just going to feel silly. But actually, sometimes, you know, wisdom begins in wonder, right? And um, noticing this is probably the best thing to be done for you and for everybody else. And if everyone can just be like, well, actually, yes, we have these concepts and they can be helpful, but where actually are we? Let's not start from the concepts. let's start from where we are.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. It reminds me of, and I'll probably not do it justice, but you know, um, Alfred North Whitehead would say that as opposed to having the conceptual guide the actual that the actual always had to be what was giving rise to whatever conceptual frame or abstraction we were going to work with um which in some respects is a, a a strange turn in philosophy right at least in the west um because so often it's coming from the abstracted right the idealized rather than coming from like coming from a transcendent orientation rather than from an eminent orientation um but i think that if I'm understanding what you're exploring, right, that 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 embodied, or like Bonnie Roy likes to say, that bodyful orientation to experience is has a kind of primacy that the abstraction.
1: Absolutely, cannot. that um, I think um, the the adherence to the abstraction comes from a place, perhaps, of wanting to get these kind of platonic ideals. We want to get to the nub of the issue, therefore we conceptualize the nub of the issue as this ideal which actually takes us away from reality rather than getting us closer to it. We want to know things, therefore we try to pin them down conceptually, whereas actually that isn't the way to get to them. Perhaps Um, the way to get to them is to well, I don't not quite know what the way to get to them is, but it's certainly not by conceptualizing them into being understood. Um, and Philip K. Dick, who's somebody I, I write and read about a lot, um, talked about these layers of, um, of reality, of understanding reality. So you have like the language layer um, and in you know, platonic terms, he talked about that being like the wall of the cave, the, the symbols and signs for things Mm. but beyond that you have things as they actually are and for one thing that's a bit overwhelming because as humans we try to we tend to try to categorize things to make them workable because otherwise we just have this constant stream of information Um, but equally that is not what they are that is a a form of management
0: (laughs) right Yeah, totally. A map is not the territory kind of. Exactly
1: that. And if we want to draw maps well, we need to look at the territory again.
0: Yeah, and maybe not just look, right? I mean, like we have all of these other ways that we can sense into what that territory is. Um, One of the things, you know, I was when I was reading your paper, um, that was the written yeah. version of the presentation that you gave, that you sent to, to me. Um, I was minded of this dynamic in Gnosticism and in Philip K. Dick's writing of this, you know, on the one hand, I, it it very much makes sense to me that there is some layer of reality or layers of reality that are deeper than kind of what is apparent. Um, But the other thing that seems really present is this kind of Manichaean dualism, right? This a little bit of a split between body and spirit or body and mind. There's a a kind of dualistic, um, you know, there's a good and evil kind of presentation that is Interesting, but I I wonder a lot about in terms of whether or not that's the most useful frame. So I'm curious, as someone who spent a lot of time with with Dick's writing, how that lands with you and yes. your thoughts on it.
1: Um, I think I I also see that as. Potentially a thing that I don't personally agree with. Um, I, I don't see things as dualistic as such, but I, I think perhaps I see it as. Um, so he has this idea of the black iron prison. I see it more as the black iron prism with an M. So things will show you an aspect of themselves. And I think that there are some things um, for him that are showing such a sort of plato's cave wall aspect of themselves have been so conceptualized and so deadened in that process that they almost do become drained of their actual value um particularly with um things that have been capitalistically value extracted. Um, He he takes the the, um, Mm -hmm. example of, say, a McDonald's burger that is just, like, boudrillardianly repeated and repeated and repeated like a photocopy until there's nothing there anymore. Um, So, you know, it's still a thing, sure it is, but, you know, is it, (laughs) in a sense, if everything has just been drained out of it? Um, But then that does still give that thing value it's it's seeing the the value that's been taken out of that and still seeing the the value in what he or Lem would term the trash of the gutter and you know there's still little flickers of light that Hmm. can break back through or be seen within it like you know if you're in a shopping center you're not in eden but it's still reality it's still the real world it's still theoretically as you know sacred as anywhere else but you know, noticing that that has been sucked out of it, I think, is a way of re-sacralizing it.
0: Fascinating. Yeah, you yeah. know, I'm I'm minded of a uh, Tyson one of Tyson Yonkaporta's teachers. This guy, Old Man Juma, likes to say that everything has mm-hmm. dreaming, right? So that in, even the cane toads, who came, you know, were imported to Australia as this really terrible idea but nonetheless they were imported to um act as a sort of biological pest control for the cane beetle and the cane grub but they ended up just multiplying and kind of disrupting a lot of the ecosystem um because they they had such a intense level of progeny but um so for a long time they were they were totally hated and reviled but you know what old man juma is saying to Tyson in this moment in, in Santok is like, even the cane toad right now is part of the dreaming of Australia. And so I'm thinking about, you know, the the shopping mall, right? The computer, the cell phone, these things that not, we don't necessarily think of as being sacred, but as you point out, right, from a certain orientation, right? Since they're part of reality, there is a sacred dimension, a sacred aspect, um, you know, an aspect of dreaming to all of these things.
1: I think so. I think... So you're Sorry. saying... Um, <laughs> I, I think um, I, that we we have to put the god back in the machine or notice the god in the machine because it's there, um, definitely. Mm. Sorry, I interrupted you.
2: <laughs> oh, just... no, no, no. I was. <laughs> it reminded me of... Um... Yankee Candle and so that on that idea then we're saying that you know Yankee Candle is now a part of the dream that is you know, the reality at present of the story of potentially the the term Yankee and paint me the civil war. So within that whole
0: right? Yankee you Candle? Gathering
2: that. Yeah, you don't know Yankee Candle? Oh, maybe I that's a not. northern thing.
0: Maybe oh, so. man. You're going to have to give us a little <laughs> that's <hilarious>. background.
2: <laughs> Yankee Candle is like ubiquitous in malls around here. Mm. It's like it's just a very strange candle shop that has like very strange candle scents. And it's just candles. Like Got They it. don't mess around. They don't try and do anything fancy. Just candles. Scented candles. Yep. Every, it's in every mall around here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. But now they're within, they're woven into the story of the Yankee.
0: Right. right. And into the story of the mall. Exactly.
1: Yep. I've seen those. Yep. Yep. Are I'm still there. there. My video has, uh, has stalled, um, I'm here was yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, so, as
0: long as your voice um, is still there. Uh, um, that Yankee candles, there.
1: candles are in the shopping center in Southampton here as well. So, so we have those, um, really. So I know about
0: them. <laughs> Maybe I'm just not as mall literate. I apologize. I'm I'm totally thinking of like the mycelial network of Yankee Candle now spreading out <laughs> across the Atlantic. <laughs> Great. Do you think that we're, um,
2: we're at, we've come, I mean, obviously this is just a step along the way, but do you think that they we're in this sort of existential peak where if, if we, if, if we can call it a peak, because we don't know yet, but um, because of um, you know our our global isolation during the pandemic, and we're faced with the idea that we we have our choices up till now have caused all of these things. Our choices up till now have caused you know the climate change, and the pandemic, and things like that, and have set us as humans uh it help it makes us be self reflective of our duality between um nature and us and because of that we see that hopefully that we're not um actually in a duality we're in symbionts but we're seeing that this is causing a very human problem. I like I've talked to a couple people now um patients and otherwise who have said that have come to the same idea that like the earth will course correct it's going to be fine it has its own uh, system to um, adjust and create homeostasis at some point but it won't be uh, uh, inhabitable or hospitable towards humans and so now all of these issues that we're facing right now seem so dire and so you know intense for us but it's a human centric problem and I wonder if like because of that I think you know we're all if we're all feeling that that we're becoming so self-reflective and and um, you know causing this you know internal gazing even more so than previously
0: Lucas are you saying that we're in the anthrocentric orientation of thinking of what's going on as the kind of problem that it is Mm -hmm. that the self-reflection is actually like recursively making us more anthrocentric. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah.
2: I wonder,
1: I think it's um, quite overwhelming to really look at these questions. Um, And I I wouldn't be at all surprised if a lot of people didn't for for quite a while, Um, you know, Maybe the existential fire alarm is going off. But equally, to look at these things really deeply, you kind of have to think a lot of things about your condition as a human that are actually quite unsettling. Like, mm. here am I breathing oxygen that I require to live. Like, there's this gas going into my lungs, and I need it to be pure. And, you know, eventually I will be mortal, and I am in space and I'm on this globe, etc, etc. And that is moving very much beyond these routinized um, security blankets (laughs) that people tend quite understandably to, um, to live their lives around. But I think that there is the possibility for such a richness, such an increased richness, whatever happens with the whole ecological situation of our lives in recognizing this in being this generation that or this this couple of generations that actually has to look in this mirror and be like oh my goodness me (laughs) isn't this all quite profound Mm
0: -hmm. yeah i the thing that i'm thinking about is at least in this is going to sound somewhat ironic in my own experience (laughs) Um, I'm finding this moment to be profoundly decentering not in the sense that I feel somehow like unrooted or unmoored necessarily though I will attribute that sense of rootedness to standing practice Um, (laughs) in a time where things are somewhat tumultuous of course but I I feel like the more I look at at the way that things are entangled and interconnected and interpenetrating um, the less focused on the human as the center of the story i become mm. so like i i i'm sure that you're right that for many of us it is doing this kind of like deepening of anthropocentrism. but at least in my own experience it's a very robust, I would say, psychoactive, bordering on psychedelic catalyst to decenter my human experience and really um, more more deeply than at any other sustain points in my life. I'm I'm feeling. I don't exactly know how to say it because there's definitely it's not as if i have no individual self that all of this is happening through there's still very much an experience of an individual self i'm not making any claims of like you know ego dissolution but there's a way that you know when i was talking about the permeability of that boundary it feels quite quite fluid quite porous um and the environment and the other than human beings in the environment feel very very present uh, in in the experience of what it is to be me these days if any of that makes any sense
1: mm, so like a tuning in to 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 these things a widening of um of percep- the perception of the, you know this wider context, then um, that that sounds like.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good way to to express it. I mean, I think also it so there's it, it's at least in two directions where there's a, there's a sense of sort of opening out, but also a sense of things coming in, right? In a in a way that's not so much about personal agency. Um,
2: yeah, I think it's the it's the juxtaposition of um, or rather maybe it's because the the uncomfortability of like you're saying carry the routine because we're so we're getting so unmoored in that respect you know none of our routines the same anymore or, <laughs> or it's become extremely routine because we can't do much <laughs> um, I think it's now um Creating a self-reflexivity, like now we have to look inward and see, okay, what what can I do that actually makes me happier, interested, and and also sort of why is this happening to me? And again, maybe that's in a human sense, or maybe it's just in a personal sense. But so, like I said, that's why I I I look at it like a a, it creates a duality between us and, and nature, us and circumstances but as soon as we step back from that then it then you see that because there is an interconnectedness because it's how do i say like because it's so obvious that we caused this (laughs) do you know what i mean so i guess that's why i think it's becoming so apparent right now but
0: i mean it's interesting because the thing that i'm reflecting on as you're saying that right is that the the whole enlightenment and modern project of of bifurcating the human from nature right is the root cause of this in some respect right and then it's you're talking about that it's like it's folding back in right so there's this kind of way that It bifurcated. I'm using my hands to speak, which is not super helpful in a podcast. (laughs) Basically, I'm like taking my hands in two different directions and moving them up and then connecting them again. So it's a little bit like a, you know, inverted teardrop here. So it bifurcates. And then perhaps, right, we're bringing those things back together because the, the telos of that bifurcation is so disruptive that we come to see that that, idea that somehow we are distinct separate and can um, act upon nature in this way where like it's a you know a tool to be used it's something to be extracted from like we're we're getting very real planetary feedback that that just is inaccurate and will not fly if we want to have a home that we can live in as you point out right earth will be fine but we have definitely if we don't change the way that we're engaging we won't be able to live here for that much longer. Um,
2: Carrie, is there much pushback in the UK on this um, idea? Well, that we've I caused think, all this? Um,
1: there's, there's a lot of the idea that we have, um, but there is a lot of uh, the idea that this is also nonsense and we should carry on just as we are and everything will be fine if we just don't think about it, which is a very British thing. <laughs> okay. Like, okay, but, Put the kettle on uh, fair. roll up your sleeves, carry on walking into a wall basically um, but yeah, there are there are a lot of people who are um you know very much you know aware of of this and doing things about it, but um I would say that uh, the majority of people are a little bit um earlier on in that path like doing their recycling and uh being good citizens but not thinking about it terribly deeply um but i, I think um i think it's really necessary i obviously it's really necessary but um i, I think it's a relationship um we are part of nate i think it's difficult to to think about these things in this way without it being experiential because if this is approached in a reason way it comes like you say from that looking outward this uh, this old telos you know but it has to be an experienced thing um, you have to think of yourself in a relationship with Everything else you are a subject, but you're also not a subject. You are part of a thing But you are also because you are thinking about that thing separate to that thing And how does that work? And I think the nearest thing I can think of is maybe the the experience of falling in love so um, You kind of become melded in some way so maybe we just need to you know fall in love and be fallen back in love with with the world in a way um almost in a millenarial way um and not devalue these things and turn them into tools um unless we want it to devalue us and turn us into a tool because it totally will because it'll all stop working <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. I love that i think that's a beautiful idea well cuz we were talking with um sophie right about how everything our environment is um we're constantly in interplay, to to the degree that we're permeating each other, from you know like the air that we breathe, which is enriched with, you know, uh, my you know spores from from the ground, um, all the different particles in the air, and and then the emotional scape of of us and the animals and all these. We're just constantly breathing each other, and um, that interplay is is. In some respects very sexual, you know, so I love
1: that. I think yeah, that's I, I think it's like this this um, kind of philosophical Eros thing and um, You know, we, we have these these drives towards things, but I think say capitalism has is you know, the peak version of um, making this drive to do something into this very um, this very informational thing this very um, calculable thing um, and maybe that's reassuring I have done well because I have made this much money and that this line is going up on this graph but that's not how it works it is all very much more fluid than that and um, you know there's more uncertainty there but it's more real and it does far less damage
0: yeah I mean I I'm thinking about how, if we take the process carry that you're talking about, right? This, this erotic exchange, um, and in capitalism, we make it, we reify it to the point where it's it's entirely object oriented. It's it's no longer about the exchange, right? I mean, yes, we talk about In modern economics exchange rates right but it's really not it's not the kind of exchange that's happening in the natural world right it's not this kind of um this movement amongst and between all of these different subjects right it's this way in which it's like okay well if i get the thing right that's that becomes the eros Mm -hmm. like it's about possession as opposed to about this kind of um interplay this dance between and amongst the different subjects it's it's really entirely subject object rather than subject to subject
1: absolutely that this nietzschean standing on a mountain and i think it comes from a place of anxiety um it comes from a place of wanting to know that everything is okay and you've done you've done what you can and you've achieved Um, but it's a false achievement. It's it's not actually achievement at all. Um, So it comes from a good place. We just need to redirect that in a more mature, meaningful way, I think.
0: Do you have thoughts about what that might be
1: Good question. Um, I suppose.
0: Big question. (laughs) Very large
1: question. (laughs) Um, I think, ideally, it would be not hyper-conceptualizing these things, not being in these... um, Mm -hmm. predetermined contracts not saying um you know this is this job and you will be here for this number of hours and you know that's the only way i can trust you to do anything right or um you know this is what i will teach in this course in this university because that's what we've decided something a lot more fluid a lot more moment to moment and that's challenging because there needs to be Mm -hmm. some form of order of course there does but maybe more of a balance uh, more of a we are looking at this thing mm-hmm. um at the time in a real way because otherwise there is that gap between the conceptualized mm-hmm. and the real and that's where everything goes awry
2: yeah so, so sort of like of, a free school idea
1: yeah basically yes so Meaning, in terms of right, you we come have, to the
2: table with ideas first
1: Exactly we have a table we have a table we're all coming to the table at a time because otherwise nothing will happen But we're coming to a table and what do we want to do? What what are our goals? What do we have? What can we use? We don't end up missing things out. We don't end up not using things that could be used Um, you know, everything is far more important than the idea of coming with these predetermined ideas that leave out really really valuable things we could be doing and hold people back and you know we all have so much potential and um it just gets cut off by these these cookie cutters um we need more flexible cookie cutters
2: (laughs) that sounds totally doable to me i can i'm sort of conceptualizing it in a In a governmental sense, it's like, you know, all the constituents come together and and say, okay, and this maybe this is sort of what we idealize our government to be anyway, but, you know, what are your concerns? Bring them to the table and let's work on them. But I don't know that that actually (laughs) occurs.
1: Yeah, at the moment, it seems to me that we have fairly predefined discourses that we are meant to know about. So this is the the idea of the day. And I have this opinion about it. You have this opinion about it. All of our opinions are valid, but we won't actually do anything about it, particularly. (laughs) We will talk about it and fuss about it and opine about it. But it somehow doesn't work as a form of political progress a lot of the time. Whereas I think the idea, at least, of course there are a great many difficulties with this, in ancient Greek democracy, if you were actually a citizen, um, the idea was you all got together and talked about it. You all had a reasonably good political education, which a lot of people don't, so it's hard to even talk about politics. if we're going to have a democracy we need people with the skills to engage in that democracy and we need to make it open to those people to come and directly have that democracy and we don't have that so we don't really have a proper democracy unfortunately
0: i mean i think in a lot of respects at least in my observation capitalism especially late-stage capitalism is antithetical to democracy Mm. because in order to have democracy you have to have a a population that is, as you point out, educated broadly, not just politically from my point of view, Um, Mm -hmm. but they also need to be able to get information that is as clear and untainted by bias, right, as possible. And since everything essentially is privatized at this point, right, there is no... (laughs) like the amount of time that it takes to try to parse together what's actually going on and sift through the bias and the follow the money kind of agendas it's it's like a full-time job right when most people don't have the time to do that because they're out making lower compensation than probably is warranted for whatever work that they're doing so that they can then pay the inflated rent and like you know pay not enough in terms of what the food actually costs in terms of environmental toll but still a huge amount of the income that is already very small for most people just to focus on like making sure that they have a place to live and clothes and food provided they you know even have the opportunity to have all of those those amenities which not of course everyone does right so i mean i'm all i'm totally all for it but i don't see how um i don't i don't really see how capitalism as it is manifest today on the planet is compatible with any kind of actually free democratic society um though i'm you know it's just it's just a point of view and i'm totally open open to being wrong about this but the more i think about it the less likely it seems to me
1: completely agreed um i I read an article recently i don't remember by who about a book i don't remember which book but the idea was um there was this capitalist saying actually capitalism is doing all of these bad things let's make it stop and the person writing the article said but there is no motivation to do that uh, so why would they um, and I, I don't see that there would be a motivation particularly and as you say people do not have time people unless they're very very fortunate in one way or another most people do not have time to think about these things if nothing else that they have to focus on day-to-day survival um, and the time that it takes to become anywhere near politically or anything else um, informed enough to grapple with these things even if you had all the time in the world it's hard enough if you're exhausted coming home from many hours of shift to then look at your bills and look after your children etc cetera, etc cetera, people are kept in a completely unnecessary state of um of exhaustion um, and time poverty, so that they don't do anything about that very situation. It's a grotesque Catch-22, and I've no idea how that can be moved beyond, but it really, really should be.
0: Total agreement. Yeah, it's it's one of these questions where, like, you know, I certainly love the, the far reaches of the speculative, um, and I think it's a really important frontier and space for us to continue to work on. But I definitely, you know, I mean, I'm not really a solutionist in any way. But I'm, I am curious about what it would take, what it could, what could happen. I mean, we saw with the beginning of the pandemic that like the world really can change on a dime. Now. There's plenty of good and plenty of ill in the changes that were made in reaction to. I would love it if they were a response, but let's be frank in reaction to SARS CoV 2. But, um, you know, I don't know that I would have believed that it was possible for things to change so drastically so quickly um, on a societal level, you know, barring like a meteor an enormous meteor hitting the Earth, but in terms of like endemic issues to the planet, changing behavior that drastically. It it's pretty amazing, right? Like, so if we can do that as a planet, it seems like it's possible that we could do it in other ways. But how that kind of emerges and there's any coherence to that coordination um it's like a fascinating question that i don't you know all i can do is hold the question
1: i guess one thing that we can all do is just to en- embody these questions as much as we can ourselves um that that's i mean obviously you know 101 but um that if that's all we can do that uh, even if that's all we can do hopefully it isn't then that's at least something we can do
2: well then it creates the space for something to fill that so something something to present itself because if we don't even um we don't even recognize that there's an issue or we don't even recognize that there's space for change then it's not
0: going to change you know yeah we're returning to the gap right right and leaning into the space between
1: and I think the space between worldviews as well, because um, you know, th- this, imagine, for example, taking a random person and putting them into this conversation. Um, what would that be like? So if we were talking to somebody who very much disagreed with us about that, about these things, Um, how would that conversation go and how can that be bridged? And of course, we can't just impose these things on people. However, we can point at them. But if they can't see the thing we're pointing at, even though it's there, what is to be done because of, you know, worldviews, et cetera. Um, But these these are hard conversations to have if your world is not the same world as somebody else is living in.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people are struggling with that right now. Because most of, most everybody I think is live, living on some sort of borderlands, you know, at some point, yeah, or, or at least coming in contact with that borderlands kind of place where somebody's totally disagreeing with you, does not see the reality as you see it. And so how do you communicate, you know? And I find the one of the first ways that, um, in a very localized way, that we're making that communication is by wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. Do you know that says quite a lot, and and with absolutely no words, like, because um, around here, the Delta variant is becoming more um, more of an issue. Sorry. There's, a party car going by. Okay. <laughs> um, the Delta variant's becoming much more of an issue now. It's it's spreading pretty well unchecked. And it just sort of, it really just started uh, gaining traction about maybe two, th- two, three weeks ago or so. So it's really spreading in certain areas. And so there's a lot of the population that was just kind of going getting used to like cool we don't have to wear our masks so much when we're doing our daily stuff you know maybe in a crowded space here or there um but we're getting used to like getting back to some sense of normalcy and then like right up against that time is those who are a little more keyed in um you are hearing this news and, and getting a little freaked out and so they're masking up again and so in a very so I went to North Carolina, um, to the beach a couple like two weeks ago, I guess. And it was really interesting to experience that like firsthand. So I I was, um, coming from New York, which is basically the epicenter of the entire, of the whole pandemic. Um, and so I was really nervous and diligent. Um, we were pretty intense lockdown for a while and it's, it's, it's always, we, we, We've never really gotten to a place where we felt comfortable uh, entirely. I don't I don't think. Uh, so we've always been always been a bit on edge and we're back doing um, masks and social distancing now. If nothing there's no there's talk of a mandate but uh, it hasn't been implemented yet. And so, you because know, for me... Let me, me ask
0: was... you a clarification question. When you say yeah. we in this case, you mean we New Yorkers or we, you and Jen? Or... Yeah. Okay. yeah, like we New Yorkers, I okay, sort of
2: cool. think. Just... And um, so when I would go into public spaces in North Carolina, people are, first of all, they're in vacation mode, granted. Um, but I would, I'd mask up indoors. It was no question. It was just, it's what I did. And it was really interesting to to navigate the emotional landscape you know, reading the body language and meta messages going on. Cause it wasn't, a, it, it, it was the, the feeling I got was, what are you doing? It's not a thing anymore. You know, it wasn't so much, it, it didn't feel so much like anger towards me or like, why are you doing this? way?" You know, that, you know, tribalism or anything like that. It was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> We're not there. Stop, you know, relax. We're on vacation, you know, kind of idea. Um, but, yeah, I think that, I think it's a really nice, it's in some way, um, bridge of that gap to say, like, hopefully the, me- the message gets across that, like, this isn't just for me. This is for you. And we're sh- we're in this shared experience together. And hopefully that, I don't know, starts a conversation or at least gets people's minds rolling a little bit
0: on a local level. I don't know. What's the vibe like with that in England, Carrie, in your experience?
1: Um, Well, there are two very, very opposed schools of thought. Um, Probably the same there. Um, Mm. There are people who very, very, very much disapprove of people who are not wearing masks, um, who think they're just completely irresponsible and have stopped speaking to people they know who disagree Mm. with them about this, etc. There's been quite a lot of conflict. Um, and there are people who are massively against, um, masks who see it as a, um, as being against their freedom, um, that there are people who, who will almost passive aggressively wear a mask, like hanging off their ear, but not wow. actually wear it, almost like a totem of rebellion. Um, and that just annoys me. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, um... So, yeah, um, I I feel like it's something that we can all just navigate a little bit sensibly. So, you know, I personally still wear a, a mask when I don't need to sometimes because I hate being unwell, if nothing else. I don't want to be. Um, and I but then again, I know people who are anti-mask um, and I, I you know, I care about these people. I'm not just going to say, ah, oh, I disapprove of you now, I'm never speaking to you again. Um, and I kind of get it because I don't like being told what to do any more than the next person. However, I personally think it's quite sensible. Um, like if I had a cold, I probably wouldn't go swimming. <laughs> you know? um, but mm. it's, you know, a really, really potentially serious thing. However, in England, I think my main concern and the concern of a lot of the people I know who are very pro-mask is that the, it's being used to, the, the, the culture of it is being used to um, bring through laws, say, against protest, um, mm-hmm. various laws that are not actually entirely necessary to further um, reduce our rights. Um, yeah. And there is more authoritarianism coming in. And currently we have quite an authoritarian government. So that's a major mm-hmm. concern across the board.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, I, the CDC a while back said, oh, you know, if you've been vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask indoors. And I promptly just like, you know, face palmed because I was like, this is going to bite us all in the ass, like, before you can finish Beethoven's Ninth, which took a little longer than that, but nonetheless. <laughs> um, and generally, like, I have kind of a Pascal's wager attitude towards, you know, masking where I'm like, OK, I mean, you know, I'm going to do this. I don't know that I think that this is going to absolutely prevent me or anyone else from getting sick or not getting sick. Right. But at the same time, it's really a relatively small thing for me to do, um, you know, also in clinical practice. Right. Like I'm very close to people in the work that I do. So, we're, you know, folks are both masked. I'm masked. The patients are masked. Um I totally just lost that thread. <laughs> never happens. Barely not never. Yeah, that's you're switching places here. Yeah. I'm switching places. So, let's see. Mask. Oh, but getting back to what you were saying, Carrie, but I mean, I think that I have been alarmed since the beginning of this with the possibilities of authoritarian overreach and ways in which human rights and issues around privacy uh and robust new levels of surveillance seemed to me to be like telegraphed from day one in this situation Um, so i'm sympathetic to the position that a mask or a whatever is an impingement on freedom and and at the same time like you i think it's a sensible thing to do Right. I'm, but I'm I'm, you know, I have a more than perhaps a more than healthy distrust of authority and certainly, you know, robust concerns about people's civil liberties. Um, so it makes it like sticky, right? And, mm-hmm. and complicated in a way that, you know, it's such a both ends situation where like, there are things that it would be probably in the best interest for all of us to do based on public health, but the institutions that were ostensibly, and this gets back to the education and information and privatization piece, right? Like we've gotten really terrible and inconsistent information from the CDC and the WHO. Part of that, of course, is because things are evolving, but the way that the information was packaged and presented didn't leave room for indeterminacy and uncertainty. And so (laughs) it was both often inaccurate and then undermined the credibility of these institutions, which then reinforces this feeling like, oh my God, these people are just out to control me. So I'm not I'm not really sure that this particular like riff goes anywhere except to say that like I am extremely sympathetic to people that feel like the situation with the pandemic has been leveraged to manipulate them and I do think in fact that that's accurate at the same time um, I think it doesn't make any sense to stand on some hill of like and thereby I'm not going to do this thing that is actually pretty simple and might help people not get sick right it's like it 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 splits in this weird way where I'm like okay you know I feel you is this really where you want to make your stand (laughs) Which... (laughs) which It seems like the answer is for some people. Yes. So,
1: yeah, I think um, there needs to not be a dichotomy between, you know, the pro mask and the anti mask people in terms of making stands. I think, um, you know, there are things that are being done in terms of civil liberties that we can at least all come together, hopefully without people, without masks terribly alarming the people with the masks, but uh, come together metaphorically and oppose together. Um, You know, we we can all come together on agreeing that this is being leveraged against civil liberties, because of course it is, because of course they would do that, because it's an opportunity.
2: Yeah. So it sounds like... um more of an us versus them than a tribalism kind of thing over there. Like for us, it's very tribal. <clears throat> it's like, uh, you can almost draw it in this, in the sand where there's like the Democrats who want to like the East coast elites, you know, or the coastal elites in general who think that they're smarter than us. And they're, they're, they're for the mandate and they want to mask up and everything. They put want to put masks on our dogs, you know? And then there's the middle States, the, the, Republicans who are like, civil liberties, you know, why, we don't need to wear masks, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, I mean, mean, there's a
0: few more tribes in there, too, right? You've got the, like, anti-New World Order folks that are more, like, on the spiritual New Age and, you know, like, sort of, like, often there'll be crews that are associated with, you know, Burning Man or other kind of festival culture um psychedelic revival stuff there's like a whole crew of those people that are like super anti covid vaccine and anti-masking um you know there's conservatives that are very much pro science pro medicine that's true then there's the folks that are like like the robert malone would be a great example of this like somebody who's part of the pharmaceutical industry part of that sort of mrna research world but who has a different take on what's going on that's a sensibly science-based but you know super questions so you've got like those figures that are somehow again in that liminal space you can't it's not doesn't seem to be politically motivated you know um i don't know so i think it's it's more diverse than that coast versus mid-state mm. you know red versus blue kind of dichotomy um mm. but I do still think it's extremely tribal. I just think there's maybe more tribes. Um and I'm sure I'm not elucidating enough of them. Um
1: I so think you here- yeah. Here in Britain, I think we, you know, we don't have the same kind of divide in, in those terms exactly. Mm. We do have, say, you know, the right and the left, of course, very <laughs> much. Um, but also within the right and the left, there are different kinds of right and left. So it's very much demarcating these, um, these more subtle differences. So most of what I've seen amidst the people I know have been among left people because those are the people i know um but there have been people who have suddenly realized that a whole bunch of their friends have a very different opinion on this than they do themselves um so you know the people who will on principle not do it because it's a liberty issue and it's just a a thing that just doesn't sit well with them and there are these other people who think it's absolutely you know essentially a responsible thing to do and therefore they absolutely will however much they're against the government Um, and within the right i'm not really sure because i have to look at it from a distance because i don't know Mm. really anyone in the right but i wouldn't be surprised if there were also um you know differences um, within there as well um, and there are people who are a bit conflicted as well uh, and you know i think it's an an and situation and i would yeah. probably put myself in that camp
2: it's hard because i feel like <laughs> it's because there's so much um agreement between um you know the author the authoritarian overreach and then considering everyone's health it seems to me it's just like it's so obvious, just wear your mask and it's fine <laughs> like I don't it's just it's so uh, it just doesn't seem like a problem, you know <clears throat> and it's it I don't know I'm just sort of befuddled at uh, current uh present circumstances, you know like I got this um this email from the our local acupuncture society in New York who was like we're about to have a mask mandate um and one of them is for Uh, healthcare professionals like they're going to just the government's just going to step in and say you know you got to wear masks first of all i thought that was just everybody was just doing that i didn't think that that needed to be a mandate i was just like of course you're in healthcare why would you not you're around sick people that sounds crazy and so they gave the survey saying asking like you know what do you think about the the mandate are you for it against it do you want us to go to bat to combat it? And I was like, my well, you know my answer was complex and I couldn't help but like <laughs> in the you know of course there's only like five questions like agree or disagree whatever and then there's like the comments and of course I just filled every single character I possibly could so it's like it's not that simple, dude you know I think I don't first of all, I don't understand why people are just not wearing them just wear them. I mean, that's the basic answer, but you know, who who cares a political affiliation? Who cares? You know, yes, you wouldn't have to have the overreach if you just cared about your neighbor and just wore it, you know? So.
0: (sighs) I mean, there still would be overreach, (laughs) though, right? Because bureaucracies and governments, like, they just, they drift in that direction, right? It it accretes. Yeah, Um, so. I mean, you know, bro, it's like, there's all those folks that are like, well, the science says that wearing a mask is it's going to kill you because you're right. you're breathing in your own carbon dioxide and it's right. super dangerous. And here's these 18 studies on PubMed that say that this is really bad for you. Okay. Right. I mean, so, you know, yeah, there's always a ream of data that can be used these days to validate just about every position. Um. Back to the, the know, information right? ecology being so wild and unruly and quite frankly toxic
2: so what else is on your mind carrie we <laughs> we went on a quite a tangent oh, on yeah, masks <laughs>
1: wow oh, man <laughs> um oh, nothing sorry now to now just totally throw the down.
2: ball in your court <laughs> yeah exactly
1: i have the ball. um that Um, going from the vision of a ball let's 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 look at this metaphorically i have the ball we all have the ball the ball is the world um so what do we do with that Um, (laughs) is it a team game um maybe (laughs) maybe it's a team game um but yeah the thing is we all have a separate ball don't we to some extent but we all have the same ball and we're looking at the ball and we're pointing at the ball but we can't all reference the same ball because we're referencing it at different points um so you know the impossibility of perfect communication um and yet the centrality of communication um because we're all living in the same reality and yet and yet are we um because You know, even looking back to say, you know, when you're 10, when you're 15, when you're 20, um, at different points of your own life, the world is entirely different. And then you're trying to communicate about things, about things you may disagree with, with people, about, you know, anything. And it's so hard because you've got this standardized language and words and concepts and symbols mean different things to different people. And you're all looking at a subtly different world that is also the same world. So, you know, my goodness, don't we do well all things considered, but there is this idea that we have this referential thing, (laughs) and it's not maybe quite that straightforward.
0: Mm. Yeah, it definitely seems like the major theme of this conversation is this, you know, the space between the gap, as you were saying in the beginning of the conversation, between the perceptible world and the sort of signs and symbols that we use to represent it both internally in terms of our own conceptual frames and then how we can may and communicate those things it's mm-hmm. it's it's certainly endlessly fascinating, right to explore that space. Um, Carrie, are you what are you doing in terms of your scholastic work? These days, um, is that are you working on papers? Are you teaching? Are you researching anything? Um,
1: well, um, what I'm um, working on at the moment is potentially going to be the chapter for book if I do it in time, which I may or may not. It's going to be something in any case. Um, I'm looking at the moment at um, a at how Philip K. Dick um, wrote about and relates to um, the theologian, I'm, I'm probably going to pronounce this name wrong, um, uh, Thierhard de Chardin, and mm-hmm. um, in various points in the exegesis, which is um, Philip K. Dick's um, philosophical non-fiction writings, lots and lots and lots of it, um, but reduced down in 2011 to a reasonably um, manageable edition. Um, he he references this this person in relation to in relation to his idea of the new sphere in relation to this idea of kind of enwelding of and this fits in quite well with our conversation of bringing reality into being through experiencing it more deeply, um, which Mm -hmm. may not be the best way of expressing it, but that's a stab at it. Um, So and in relation to reason and revelation. So in in relation to, say, Chardin was a scientist, um, but he was also a theologian. Um, He thought that as a Jesuit that um, we could understand the world through reason, through teleology, um, but also um, like Philip K. Dick, he had these experiential, revelatory experiences. Um, and he tried to use, like Philip K. Dick did, reason to express these things to people, to bridge that gap, to you know, usher in these experiences. And um, so I'm thinking, so a, a slight side note, um, Richard Doyle, one of the editors of the exegesis, wrote about Philip K. Dick in terms of doorways to Eleusis, So an an initiation Mm. into the mysteries. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what he is trying to do. That is also what Chardin is trying to do. Um, How do we reason about revelation and reveal reason? How do we um, Mm. create these things experientially? So that's what I'm looking at at the moment in relation to these two writers, how they do that in similar ways, how Philip K. Dick references him and understands him and what they're doing. How is this done? how is revelation mm. communicable um so that's what i'm looking at the moment
0: that's awesome yeah that sounds fun Thank i'm you. curious <laughs> you're totally welcome <clears throat> i'm curious other than the um if other than the writing the research the sort of contemplation around this if you have ways that you're exploring embodying and deepening your experience into that um interplay between reason and revelation
1: very very much so i think that's kind of why i'm doing it kind of why mm-hmm. i'm drawn to these ideas so i've been thinking about um you know mysticism i suppose ultimately since i was a teenager i accidentally came across a book on mysticism in a um in a bookshop and started reading about it and thought to myself ah these are experiences i seem to be having to some extent mm. or other um, I think what Maslow would call peak experiences, particularly, mm-hmm. but these experiences in which I am more in-worlded, in which things seem more real, in which I am, I suppose, more, you know, fluid, more open-tuned into reality, whether that be just God or reality is an open question. But um, so I was then drawn to um, Philip K. Dick's work. Um, I did my... MA dissertation on uh, the exegesis and time and space and temporics and how he he looks at how the world is experienceable. Um, but in terms of um, pulling myself away from intellectualizing, which is a thing that I do, um, I'm I'm trying to yes merge what I do in the world. So th- this writing, this this theorizing, this talking with what is really a great deal more important to me. Um, this kind of quest that i've been on since my mid-teens i suppose um through books through experience to have revelation to have these peak experiences to Mm. get myself deeper and deeper into reality and i think maybe it's wanting to be able to talk about this, wanting to be able to share it, wanting to be able to usher people in if they want to, uh, not kicking and screaming, hopefully, um, into these like experiences to share these things with people. Because it can be like, you know, if you're 14, reading a book on mysticism in your bedroom by yourself, a little bit emo-ishly alienating.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, I want to move beyond that. So, yeah. Uh, and these sorts of conversations are like ways i've found to do that so for example um jeremy johnson does a a wonderful um series of um of talks and things where we talk about phenomenology and all of that sort of thing and the past year has just been absolutely brilliant for me because um i've been able to talk about these things um in person um and it's brilliant (laughs) but but go ahead sorry (laughs)
2: Oh, no, you answered my question. I was to say, is there a specific example of of things that you're doing, but having conversations?
1: <laughs> Basically, yes, like warm containers um, and also mm. experimenting in my day-to-day life beyond that of trying to bring that into my interactions with just the people I interact with. So rather than just, I suppose this sounds probably terrible, but in the past, just kind of being in a Sartre Um, state of, okay, I am now going to have tea with my aunt and it's not going to be a meaningful experience and it's going to be, you know, just this thing that is this lower, not lower, but different, more routinized element of experience and then I can escape and go for a walk and actually be in the world again. Why Mm -hmm. not just, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt and try to actually really exist with them properly Um, because Mm -hmm. it might work.
2: Yeah, it might. <laughs> I appreciate that, though, I, especially in yeah, right now, because you know, as when things are limited, what you're able to do is very limited. You know, you have to find the meaning within the routine, and it's tricky.
1: Yeah, bring the meaning into the routine. Find the meaning in the routine, and I suppose also respect the routine and the people in the routine. Um, enough to not just power through apparently banal life events and experiences, not just sort of be apathetic in relation to it, not make it the sacred, sacralized other thing that happens occasionally. Um, Because it needn't be, I don't think.
0: It reminds me of this aphorism. If you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Somewhat up for debate, but nonetheless, I think the spirit of like, okay, well, if I, if I decide that this is all totally boring, it's almost a certainty that it will be, right? But if I can actually show up and be present to whatever is arising in the moment, it will probably be anything but boring.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In case like your auntie listens moment. to
0: this, I'm sure it will be.
1: <laughs> I, I had no particular aunt in mind. I, I would just like oh, okay, to, uh, <laughs> to say. Uh, all of my Hold aunts are fascinating. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's like that awkward moment when you realize you're the one bringing the boringness to the table <laughs> with your expectation right. of it.
0: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, let's tell a let's tell a more compelling story than that, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Man, that really makes me. I I guess I never really thought of it exactly like that. But you're so right. That how many instances have I been the boring one? You know, I'm I'm the one not engaging, so I'm not making it interesting. That's fascinating. I love that. Yeah, man.
0: Don't bring the boring. Yeah. No. Be the party. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So we're we're coming in towards the landing of this conversation. Carrie, are there thoughts, questions, things you wanna let people know about other than the awesome chapter that it sounds like you're working on right now? Yeah. As we um as we bring this conversation in.
1: Oh gosh. Well, um, well. Um, my name is Carrie Melmoth. I am in planning to set up some form of website in the near future because it's been pointed <laughs> out to me that that would be helpful. Um, and yeah, basically just, you know, I've really enjoyed this. And I suppose if I were to, to give anyone any homework, because I do love academia and academic exercises, um, the homework that I would, would give to anyone listening to this would be to maybe go through a day without conceptualizing things, because this is a, a thing that I did with a friend once in a library. Um, we we tried to not think of things in terms of language, almost as a rebellion against the very idea of libraries, much as we love them. Um, <laughs> you know, just experience things directly for a period of time. Try to just completely clear out your mind and see what happens. I suppose, and then come back to the table and conceptualize it then if you want to, um, but in terms of questions, yes, you know what what i what things are are you both thinking in terms of this this table in terms of this uh, you know moving forward in the the gap um, mm-hmm. what, what are your thoughts
0: so there's two things that come to mind um, one is that I think that what you're speaking to about having a time to engage with a non-conceptual orientation to experience is like super, super important um, both to do as a personal practice in whatever way is resonant and also to find times and spaces to do with other people, right? Because it's one thing to do it in relationship when it's just me it's another thing to do it in relationship when there's other humans around too which i is a a little anthrocentric but at the same time i think a usefully anthrocentric orientation um and then in terms of the table right i think that both acknowledging that there is a, a place and a space for us to come together and to show up and be present with each other and really, um, engage with curiosity and respect and love and appreciation for just the, the, like the riotously diverse perspectives and stories and experiences that weave this life you know this world into being and becoming i mean i think that is both incredibly important and also like one of the most invigorating and um joyful and life-affirming processes that i know of to engage in and it can happen in you know lots of ways right it can happen as an overt thing where people agree that that's what's happening it can happen you know you can kind of do it as a spy in the house of love style where like, I'm going to show up that way, whether anybody else knows it or not. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to call the table into being or I'm going to sometimes I think of it more as a, a dance space or a space to, you know, fly through. But that that. What's the the line from the New Testament about, you know, if you gather in my name, I will be there. So like all it takes is one of us gathering right our our intention to be present in this like in this way where we increase the permeability of the self other boundary and like really seek to root and reach out into deeper ways of being and becoming for it to shift things on some level, right, which allows maybe for um, a kind of emergence to be facilitated that I, you know, who knows what will come of it. But at the same time, it to me, at least feels like it has some inherent value and coherence. So that's what I think of when I think about the table at the moment.
1: Yeah, that sounds like very um, that that resonates a lot there is vitality on the table
0: yeah and in the table what you got, i have Liz? a siren so i got nothing <laughs> there's an ambulance going by so i got nothing
2: <laughs> it's new york city uh doing new york city sorry
1: <laughs> the emergent
0: <laughs> there you go well played
2: yeah no need to wait on me this is not ha- not going away anytime soon.
0: So thank you, Carrie, for joining us. <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah, Carrie, thanks so much. It's
1: thank you. I-, I really enjoyed this.
0: Well, let us know when your website is yes. formed, and we will let folks know this podcast, I imagine, unless you're going to have your website ready in the next few days. We'll be out before that, but we will <laughs> circle back and let folks, let folks know um, where they can find you and where they can read or listen to the interesting and beautiful things we're thinking about and exploring
1: oh many thanks
0: it's our pleasure thank you so much
2: thanks carrie